back to Mike and Maurice's Mind Escape. Let us help you escape your mind. folks welcome back to mike and maurice's mind escape we have episode number 125 today we're going to be talking about psychedelics and metaphysics with peter Schurstedt, um he or hughes or peter Schurstedt's h i guess he's going by now um and uh peter is an author he is a philosopher he's a professor and um he's got a great ted talk out there i'll put the link down below the video after we're done live and you guys can go check that out it's it's really worth it so uh but welcome peter thank you for coming on thanks a lot for inviting me um i look forward to this talk because uh we have been in touch for a while haven't we and yeah. uh here we are at last during this global crisis well yeah. i mean there's not a better time to uh philosophize than now correct i mean <laughs> yeah you think so except uh i've actually got less time to philosophize because i've got two young children at home with me almost constantly mm. so you know i thought actually this lockdown we have in the uk would be you know like my phd three years isolation philosophy phd but actually it's the opposite of isolation i'm constantly with people get this the odd solitary walk but um but it's um yeah i don't get that actually i don't get that much time to uh read or think really it's more like uh, homeschooling preparing food etc etc yeah maybe this nice you know since you aren't doing as much of it since you're obviously not at school teaching or whatever uh maybe the, it'll be a nice little break and when you come back to it there'll be some new juices flowing i mean that's kind of how i approach those things yeah i hope so i mean i'm looking at the yeah. positive side of it yeah. i mean exactly. one, negative, one negative side is the big conference on the philosophy of psychedelics i've been uh, organizing for almost a year has been postponed now to um april next year you know yeah so, so uh, what's the name of that you i saw you promoting that yeah, that was uh, so. It's called the well, uh, the philosophy of psychedelics, and the website philosophyofpsychedelics.com, and um, it's at the University of Exeter. Um, it should now happen in mid-April 2021. It was supposed to happen last week, um, and it's uh, well, we might expand it now. But originally, it was like about twelve. It was twelve speakers, philosophers from around the world, um, who were going to talk about different aspects of how philosophy and psychedelics interrelate. And um, half of it was going to be, it was going to be short talks at 20 minutes each. And then it would, the afternoons were going to be um, discussion groups, you know, so a lot of focus on discussion. Um, and then a panel at, on the last day, it's going to last for three days. Um, and um, it's sort of co-organized by people, Americans uh, related to the Center for Process Studies in America, in uh, California. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a Whiteheadian Institute. But... Um, but yeah, it's been uh, postponed. But luckily, virtually all the speakers are happy to do it next April. And in the meantime, we're going to get a book out. So those talks hopefully will turn into essays, uh, which we'll publish in an anthology. So we've got a year to that. And at the same time, like I said, we might expand it. So we might bring in cameras so it can be live online and uh, might bring in more speakers. Possibly, we'll, you know, we're in discussions now. But we've got another year. So Yeah, you should absolutely... Um, either broadcast it or record it if you can. I definitely think that people will be interested in watching that afterwards. Yeah. 
I mean, definitely the the talks. We, I, I'm pretty sure we will do that now. But yeah. the discussions, you know, like if you're filming discussions, it sort of uh, makes some people shy, so they don't contribute as much. So mm-hmm. don't know if we'll we'll do that, but we'll see. You know, it's all it's all up in the air at the moment. So why don't you give us a little bit of your your background? I don't want to go too much into it, but just give us a little brief overview of how you got into this and. Um, you know, how you got into it professionally and that kind of thing. Okay, well, um, quickly, um, well, my my father, who was a, an artist, a painter, he was always into philosophy, but more Eastern philosophy, so I wanted to study that. It wasn't really available in the UK at the time, so I studied Western philosophy. Um, that's how I got into philosophy, I suppose. And then um, I um, was attracted to Nietzsche, as a lot of 20-year-old males often are, and uh, I, uh, then I sort of, but after that, I read Schopenhauer, who got me interested in uh, this notion that there's an underlying will. Well, that's Nietzsche as well, will to power. And that really brought me on via Bergson into a philosopher called Whitehead, who um, had this systematic version of panpsychism, which is the view that minds exist in all of matter or all of nature, mm-hmm. not in chairs and tables as such, but in self-systematic entities. It's a very old ancient and uh, respectable point of view, even though today it's seen as a bit bonkers. Got into that, um, that way, I suppose. And then with psych, so I was interested in the philosophy of mind, how mind relates to matter generally. And um, I was, yeah, I was teaching William James and he spoke, you know, he he wrote about a religious experience or mystical experience. And he Mm -hmm. said, you know, alcohol is the first step of mystical experience, ether, nitrous oxide, and uh, so on. And then I, um, and then I, you know, it just so happens that where I live or where my family lived at the time, um, there were a lot of magic mushrooms growing in local fields and so on. So I picked a few, checked that they weren't poisonous. I took I took them in London and it sort of changed my, my whole, um, immediately changed my values. I was suddenly very interested in this most, the most amazing uh, sort of um, aspects of mind, which, you know, before that, I was completely ignorant of really um, and I looked at the literature the philosophical literature I didn't find that much I found more since and then I got really into sort of psychedelic philosophy of mind I suppose you could say uh, in relation to metaphysics you know that the cosmos is ultimately mental and um, and at the same time I pursued this Nietzschean view um, uh, I suppose that's sort of um, epitomized in an essay I wrote in my book called Neo-Nihilism where um, I sort of argue that, you know, through Hume, Schopenhauer, Nietzsche, mostly that there are no such things as objective morals, but nonetheless there's valuation. Yeah, and that's, and then um, what happened? Oh, yeah, so I did, a, I did a master's and I taught in London for quite a few years. And then I returned to Cornwall and I did a PhD at Exeter, which is in the adjoining county, Devon. Um, and then I now then... Uh, teach there and I'm a research fellow there and this conference was a major part the major part of that uh, which has now been postponed so so, uh, yeah so I'm not really sure where I am at the moment (laughs) interesting you mentioned uh, William James Uh, he was kind of an interesting guy too because um, what did he say he said something about like psychology like the first lecture I heard on psychology was one that I gave or something like that Um, so he was very fascinated with the mind and, and uh, everything, like you mentioned. But, uh, yeah, interesting stuff. So where do you stand? Are you a nihilist currently, or was that just a phase, or what's going on? 
I don't emphasize that anymore, and I, I call it neo-nihilism because it's not the same as general nihilism, like everything's meaningless. I don't. I believe quite the contrary. There's, there's more values in the world than is commonly under commonly believed, you know. But in one sense, I say you know nihilism in the fact that I don't believe there is an objective morality um, that to you know like a standard, a Platonic standard that exists mm-hmm. to which you can talk about progress or retrogress or ultimately good and evil. So I'm Nietzschean still in that sense, you know, sort of. I think of the world beyond good and evil. Think of it as, uh, you know, in terms of conflict of values, but not necessarily in terms of good and evil. A bit like most people today don't really think of actions in terms of um, virtue and sin, you know. Mm-hmm. And see the world that way because we don't believe in the, well, when I say we, the majority, at least here in Europe, don't see the world in that Christian manner. Right. And, um, and the Nietzsche basically just pushes that a step further and says even what we even if you're an atheist and you say, you know, you talk about good and evil or right and wrong or what you ought to do and what not to do, ultimately this is based on a Christian legacy, which is now we are now blind to. And um, and his whole point, re- ultimate point of saying that famously God is dead is that if you really realize that, if you really believe that God, there's no sort of monotheistic God, um, then that has massive ramifications on the substantiation of one's morals right or logically it does and um and uh yeah so 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 i think that's a reasonable point of view it doesn't make you evil because there's no such thing right but um right. It just sort of uh, i think it opens up your mind and it also gets it's quite um emancipating it sort of gets rid of a lot of guilt like, or remorse that you might have had you see the world in fresh eyes everything you accept everything ultimately you know so at the same time of course you value certain things right. overall have ideals um so it's um yes yeah, it's, it's not black and white ultimately no. yeah I have, I have a little bit of a different take on that actually i think that um we're talking about psychedelics i think that might have been the catalyst for this morality in some ways i mean who hasn't taken a psychedelic and said oh you know when they come down i gotta get my life in order even if you've got <laughs> things going on you know, it's one of those things where it, it makes you reassess everything when you come down pretty much. And like, I, I guess not everybody's introspective, but that's always my been my experience is this, you know, idea that, oh, you know, it gives you this different perspective on your own life when you come down. And no matter what happened, you want to get your stuff together. But also you think that, like you mentioned, things that you've done are evil or out of, you know, you know, something sorts or something that you wouldn't have normally done or you look back at a certain scenario things like that so uh do you think i mean forget about like the stoned ape and all that stuff but do you think that possibly psychedelics could have been the catalyst for us to like maybe the self-awareness aspect of it or introspection yeah i mean there's there's a lot to be explored there hasn't i mean there's a great um writer called octavio paz who's a nobel prize winner and he wrote about this uh not in a not in a massive way but he said that psychedelics um, destroy this kind of uh, moral dogma that a lot of people have because as you say it brings you out of your culture and you see things in the new light and that of course can lead to a uh, revaluation of values to use a Nietzschean term um, can lead to uh, a whole reassessment of one's tables of of values so you um, yeah you see, see things afresh and um, and in many ways, you know, taking psychedelics, therefore, is a bit like reading Nietzsche, you know, it just sort of frees you up suddenly, you know, you're suddenly like, oh, okay, I assumed this before. There's no reason to assume that. It takes you out of your culture, makes you uh, transcultural, as it were. So uh, that is, and 
not to say that is a good, objectively good thing, but it, it can, I think it certainly can help a lot of people and it can stop the stagnation of culture. So from my subjective point of view, it's a lot, there's a lot of um, benefits to it. <clears throat> yeah, this idea yeah, give, of... Give you some fresh eyes, if yeah. you will. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. This idea of uh, God, though, um, I think from interviewing a lot of people now on our podcast and just talking with people about it, I think most people don't believe that there's a bearded guy, a Zeus-looking character sitting up in the clouds. I think a lot of people think of um, God from what I've, you know, like I mentioned, talked to is like some sort of maybe pure consciousness, maybe mm -hmm. some sort of thread that, you know, is ingrained within everything, that kind of a thing, some common, uh, mm -hmm. you know, or primordial source of energy, something along those lines. I have very few people I talk to these days think of, again, the, the Zeus looking character in the sky. Mm -hmm. um, what about from the philosophical standpoint? Is there, is there still even people even debating whether there's some character like that, or is it all, like I mentioned, just all like a metaphysical uh, nature type of thing? I mean, in philosophy, not in certain realms of theology, probably, I imagine. Or, uh, but I, um, I mean, you know, Nietzsche was um, very glad to hear about Spinoza, and Spinoza calls the universe God, or nature God. Mm -hmm. and, and that is some, something akin to what you just said. Um, and ultimately, at this point, it becomes a linguistic issue, you know, um, whether you believe in God or not is a matter of definition, you know. Um, so if you believe in, in him as Zeus or Odin or whatever, um, you know, uh, then it doesn't seem very um, rational to do so. But if you like Spinoza, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm very sympathetic to Spinoza, if you wish to call nature God, then so be it. Hmm. So um, and therefore that changes the whole dynamic of the sort of theist versus atheist debate. Mm -hmm. um, and Nietzsche himself himself criticizes uh, people who call themselves atheists. You know, they haven't got a right to this because they don't really understand, uh, you know, what you know, spiritual insights. I mean, we would today we would call Nietzsche a very spiritual person. You know, I don't like to use that word because of all its connotations. But he was very high, you know, spiritually minded, as it were. Mm -hmm. um, he, you know, started with with the god of intoxication, Dionysus, and he ended that way. Um, he talks about mass inspiration, sort of a kind of, um, you know, some kind of transcendental inspiration he get from, he got from his work and so on. So, I mean, yeah, I don't think uh, it's it's particularly um, useful to speak about God in this, uh, you know, traditional way. And there's even question whether he was ever meant that way. But um, I think certainly there's reason to believe that originally he was seen as a king figure you know you sort of bow down before god still you pray to him like mm -hmm. before king, and he has his servants satan was originally you know like his servant tempting people to test their allegiance and so on and uh and of course this makes sense doesn't it from a sort of um anthropological point of view you know you, you see great kings and and mm -hmm. then you the ultimate king and that would be a god but then yeah over time he sort of um transfigured into uh the universe itself um whether the universe itself is a consciousness, uh, that's known as cosmopsychism in, in my field. I'm not sure about that. I'm, I think it's it's possible, but mm -hmm. um, I haven't really uh, I'm really come to that conclusion. But from a Spinozist point of view, I think that uh, if you want to call nature God, then so be it. You know, it's just it's just a matter of linguistic preference. For sure. Um, 
well, now I want to kind of get to consciousness and philosophy of the mind and uh, mind and matter and that kind of a thing. So um, I've heard you talk about dualism a little bit. I mean, you even mentioned it in your TED Talk. Um, one thing I find interesting is there's certain things that you can kind of pick apart within that. So, I mean, I was looking at, what is it, the identity of indiscernibles from uh, Leibniz. So if two things are the same that means that they have to be exactly the same and made up of the same components and as far as we know mind and matter are not made up of the same thing um mm. how do you feel about that is there is is that been kind of debunked at this point or what's going on there i mean this this um thing this principle also known as leibniz's law um which is yeah like as you say if something's qualitatively identical it must be numerically identical um is I mean there are a lot of there's a lot of literature like questioning that, but if we assume it to be true, as to be honest, most philosophers probably still do. Um, with regard to mind and matter, our understanding of mind and matter, as as you then intimate, is, is you know, each of them contain very distinct properties. You know, like for example, matter has has a, has a property of extension. In other words, you know, three dimensionality space. Uh, like an emotion, a mental state, mm -hmm. like curiosity, doesn't. You know, you can't define it that way. You can't say my curiosity was three by four by seven inches or something like this. And, and therefore, by Leibniz's law, it seems that they cannot be numerically identical. They cannot be the same thing. Mm -hmm. However, um, it, there's another, I mean, Spinoza, coming back to him, he said, ultimately, mind... And matter were the same thing, but we humans are incapable of um, seeing the core elements of both. Mm -hmm. So what we know of matter is just like a shell of what's real. Thus, panpsychism, you know, like internally there's a consciousness or a mind, mental, mentality. And also what we know of ourselves, our self-consciousness, is also limited. We just get the shell of that. Now, therefore... Um, if we say that matter is this absolute thing and mind is this absolute thing that we know, then they have to be separate. Yeah, absolutely. Then we get a dualism. Right. However, if on epistemic, from an epistemic point of view, if you accept that um, w we don't really know what matter is, and that's actually most physicists will accept that. We don't really know what energy is. Mm -hmm. You know, calculate it and so on, give it numbers. But we don't know if those numbers are all there is to it. Um, and certainly with minds, you know, like most people are probably not fully self-conscious. You don't really know yourself or you get to know yourself in dispositions at war, like a lot of people say, or in times of stress or whatever. Um, but the fact of the matter is, um, I, I personally believe that we don't really know the full extent, the concrete nature of mind or matter. Now, if we did, we might, it would be a parsimonious view to think that if we understood matter fully, we'd see mind in it, and if we understood mind fully, we'd see matter in it, thereby bringing them together into a monism. But I'll add this qualification. Now, that monism is not materialism, not physicalism, because mm. physicalism is rather that, you know, there's a physical then, um, that the mind is ultimately reducible to that. But Spinozism is that they're both equally fundamental, mm -hmm. ultimately the same. But we humans do not have the cognitive capacity to um, cognize or to perceive or to comprehend in any way that unity. Yeah, so 
that makes a lot of sense. And but that brings me to um, bring up, you know, Simone Laplace's famous billiard shot thing, where if you were given all the geometry, all the data, all the information that you could predict where the billiard balls were going to end up off of a break shot, meaning that we don't have the tools to calculate everything um, within, you know, the universe. And if we did, we'd probably be able to see what was going on, obviously, a lot better. Um, almost like it, you know, it would be like God's pool shot, you know, not to bring up God again, but um, so. Well, yeah, I mean, I'd say that is certainly that's analogous in that sense that, yeah, we are limited on information. I mean, my my beef with um, Laplace here is that it just makes too many assumptions. So, for example, it assumes that the laws of nature are constant. Mm -hmm. um, you know, if we knew all the laws of nature and if we knew uh, the positions, the locations of every um, of every particle, then we could calculate, and at every instant, then we can calculate what would happen in the future. I mean, you know, so many philosophical assumptions there. Number one, that there are constants of nature then. Hume, for example, says, we don't know that. We see regularities in nature before we know in the future the speed of light might change, you know, or whatever it may be, right? So, so we can't generalize from the particular. Instance, the notion of a temporal instant doesn't make sense and uh, suffers what Whitehead calls fallacy of uh, simple location. It's part of the fallacy of misplaced concreteness. In other words, an instant is a bit like a mathematical point, you know, it's an ideal thing that can't actually exist because every instant really duration has a beginning and then an end, therefore the duration, right? Um, mm -hmm. And also particles. I mean, this is, uh, this is again, an ideal. I mean, um, really, in, in reality, what we call a particle is interfused with its environment. I mean, ultimately, with the whole universe. So um, this kind of... Um, Determinism is, is based on these assumptions, which Whitehead, um, you know, tries to eradicate. Also, it's based on uh, another massive assumption related to mind, which is that um, the, the ultimate sort of implication is that the mind emerges from matter. So if we knew the position of all particles in the brain, all the neurons and so on, we could predict uh, what they would think. But, of course, we don't. We, all we know is that mind and brain are correlated. We don't know the nature of that correlation. We don't know if it's an identity, as I said. We don't know if it's brain causes mind. We don't know if mind causes brain. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't know if um, something common to both causes both of them. So um, that's a further assumption with that determinist nature of predicting the future. Right. And if the mind doesn't, if the mind doesn't emerge from the brain, uh, which also has evolutionary problems, then we can't determine the future, of course, because if the mind um, has any power at all, it will change the future. If it doesn't have any power at all, it wouldn't have evolved and maintained itself in presumably many, many species. So uh, so I'm not really convinced by this um, materialist determinism. I think it's just a product of a false way of understanding reality, sort of abstract way. Yeah, I don't necessarily believe it either, but I mean, I entertain all possibilities and options i do think though it's interesting to think about that maybe randomness is a subjective thing and then we live in this objective world so our idea of um you know like you were just talking about determinism that internally there is no determinism externally there is determinism what I, do you think that that's a possibility 
Um, you mean so the physical world would be determinist? So, so randomness world. only exists uh, internally, meaning again b- back to what we were just talking about—not necessarily hard, but just that this we're deceiving ourselves because we just don't, you know, have you know. It's kind of going mm-hmm. back to the last point a little bit. It could be the fact that I mean Leibniz wrote about that. For anything that appears random, you could find a mathematical uh, formula to trace it to. Mm-hmm. to to follow it and predict it. And that's just, again, a cognitive impairment of the human race. Um, I mean, if things were random, it still would not mean that, okay, it would mean they're not determined, but it would not necessarily mean that we had any um, determination of our own future and thus the future. And therefore, you'd still get into those evolutionary problems. I mean, I don't know the answer to this. All I know is... (laughs) any route you take, you come to a sort of cul-de-sac problem, right? Sure. And, uh, so I'm not, I'm not pretending to know anything, but I just see, it's just like nothing makes sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so every, everything yeah. just doesn't work out, unfortunately. I mean, there's a big problem with free will as well. How does that, you know, how's right. that, how, how does um, your, how can your mind determine actions or certain actions, um, thus seemingly transcending the known laws of nature? Why would they break down at this point? Um, Spinoza doesn't believe in free will, for example. You know, he believed in, in something akin to a block universe, ultimately. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Um, so there's a problem if you believe in free will, and thus no determinism. There's a problem if you don't believe in it either. So there's obviously a th- there's a, some kind of reality, some kind of um, greater theory out there beyond physics and beyond psychology that would make sense of it. Yeah, that's why, I mean, I, the thing that, you know, or the research and work that I've read um, in philosophy recently is a lot of Thomas Kuhn, just that resonates with me because it's so true in the sense that um, we don't know a lot. And then 10 years from now, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, it's going to be completely different because of, you know, this idea that um, the more data that piles up, piles up, piles up, bottlenecks, and then you know, you get your paradigm shift and then it leads to a scientific revolution. So, um, I think we're possibly on the cusp of that with the psychedelic stuff and, and looking at the mind and consciousness and stuff. I don't know if it'll happen anytime soon, but the fact that we're even entertaining it, I think we're on our way to some sort of a breakthrough, but even then it's like, that's just leading to the next breakthrough. It's like, we're just, it's like, we're Sisyphus pushing this ball up, up, up the mountain through, and breaking it, through, you just baby. can't get to the top, you know? Yeah, I don't think I don't think there is a top. I mean, like um, I think there's infinite knowledge that is theoretically attainable. So yeah, as you as you suggest, the more we know, the more we realize we don't know, and thus, you know, knowledge advances. Mm. Um, I, I think with paradigm shifts, yes, yeah, a great book by Thomas Kuhn, Structure of Scientific Revolutions. You know, with um, that uh, science doesn't progress in a linear manner; rather, it's sort of um, there are little problems that a number of scientists face, and they overcome it. But then within that uh, field, there's like a few anomalies that don't make sense. The classic one, of course, is with Newton and the uh, perihelion of Mercury. You know, it didn't make sense in the Newtonian physics. And then someone like Einstein comes along and says, actually, if you completely scrap that, rethink it in these terms, then you get that problem solved. But then, of course, that leads to other problems like, you know, famously, relativity does not cohere with quantum physics. Um, and that's sort of major scientific um, incoherence of today. You know, they both work in their own separate fields, but they they don't correlate. I mean, different theories about how they might correlate, like 
you know, that there are 11 dimensions and so on or, mm-hmm. or whatnot. But um, there's no agreement on that. And, of course, those physical theories do not account for mind as well. Um, I mean, Einstein was a Spinozist, so I presume he was a monist then. Um, but there's very little agreement on these ultimate, ultimate questions. Mm-hmm. I think one role of the philosophers is really just to bring out these issues, you know, and uh, stop any dogma. You know, this mm-hmm. is the worst thing that people think. Oh, you know, science, the worst thing you can hear quite often is science says so-and-so. The yeah. fact of the matter, though, is that there are different scientists and they vehemently disagree with each other quite often, right? It says, I mean, even with this um, coronavirus, for example, you know, like the experts disagree. It's not like science says this, therefore this should happen. This right. One day it's one thing. The next day they're telling you the opposite thing and back and yeah. forth. And On the same day, different scientists will say completely opposed things. And of course, as a non-expert, you know, what do you do? How, how do you re- relate to that? Right. Um, yeah, that's the problem. Like, if you if you don't, if you're not using your own intellect, who do you who do you yeah. agree with? That's the whole problem. Is a lot of people are just following the sheep. Yeah, and uh, I mean that this relates to everything really. I mean, even like the Big Bang. I mean, a lot of physicists don't believe in the Big Bang theory anymore. But you know, for like a, almost a hundred years, it was like that's the truth. The universe started thirteen point seven billion years ago. You know. Now that run into a lot of problems, and there are different views about that. And well, yeah, they uh, find stars that are older than the dating that they have of the universe. So then they give the dating of the universe the about or the <laughs> you know roughly yeah. symbol, and and then say, mm-hmm. oh well, the star could be younger, and the universe could still be older, and, and that kind of stuff. And you know, who's... Roger Penrose has got a theory that you know with the same data that we have, we could um, assume a different hypothesis. As as in an infinite universe, as an in infinite backwards in time. Oh and yeah, then, yeah. The whole notion of time doesn't make sense in physics at all because the essence of time, according to McTaggart, anyway, this great uh, philosopher, the essence of time is the notion of past, present, and future. And in physics, that cannot be determined. It can only be determined by a consciousness going through it. Right. Mm-hmm. So therefore, consciousness is essential to the uh, to time to the notion of time. Um, but um, but it's lacking in physics, and this was like Bergson's, one of Bergson's main critiques of uh, you know sort of Minkowski-Einstein theory of relativity, etc. Um, so again, leading to the issue that um, we should be humble in our beliefs, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that at some point, obviously, science and philosophy have kind of strayed away from each other, and I think that science needs philosophy because that's kind of how we got to where we are um is making some giant leaps occasionally based on some predictions by philosophers that made sense and um if you look at science now it almost seems like what science is is this very dogmatic slow crawl of chipping away to the next thing um or at least that's the way i perceive it and um and i love science don't get me wrong but i do think that they're is some blinders that they don't even recognize um, and having to do with reality. And I think one of those, which I want to talk about a little bit more now, is psychedelics. So do you mind talking about some of your experiences or what have your experiences been with? Yeah. It's too late now to go back, so no problem. Hey! <laughs> <laughs> um, first thing, I'd, yeah, I'd just like to say about the relationship between philosophy and science quickly. Um, yeah, like basically, you know, science, what we call science in English today was uh, natural philosophy mm-hmm. in philosophy until sort of mid-1800s where it sort of splintered off. 
And um, it took as its foundation a certain philosophy um, from Galileo and Descartes and so on that uh, there are primary qualities of like matter, solid matter, and then there are secondary qualities of mind, you know, emotions and colors and whatever. And that set science, as we understand it, on a particular trajectory, which was very good during the Industrial Revolution, very good for making technology, machines and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But obviously, we'd always have to come to this cul-de-sac, which is the high problem of consciousness. You know, how do you, how do you relate mind and matter, ultimately? And this is, this is where we are now. This is an old, ancient problem, the high problem of consciousness. Um, and this mechanistic worldview could not explain it. Um, but there's still belief, you know, there's still the general belief, at least in my experience, is that we don't know how it relates yet, but the more neuroscience we do, the more we'll understand what it is. But this, is, of course, is um, what Karl Popper calls promissory materialism. You know? It's like we don't understand it. We know it to be true, even mm. though we don't understand it, and the future will bring results. Just mm. like Newton, so we don't understand the perihelion of Mercury, but, you know, further Newtonian yeah, that's what Brian Greene was saying uh, on Joe Rogan when he was on there. He was saying with consciousness, he's like, I, I would bet everything that it's just a byproduct of material. Yeah. So oh, yeah, I saw that. I mean, that's just absolutely ridiculous. That is pure faith. <laughs> yeah, that's a tough bet there, buddy. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, it's absolute, it's a religion. I mean, it's right. like you have faith that this will be uh, worked out because it's worked out other things. It's worked out how to travel quickly or something, you know, it's complete uh fallacy um you know ultimately in i mean my view is that it you know this understanding the brain you will maybe understand how to create medicines for certain mental cases and so on because you don't need to know the core relation for that you know just like how a general anesthetics work we don't understand why they work if we did we'd know the perfect neural correlates of consciousness but that doesn't matter we can still use them for operations and whatever um but Science as a method is fine in that way, but science as a dogma um, leads to stagnation of thought and culture. And, and this is what one role of philosophers, I think, you know, to compare the sciences to sort of bring in physics to biology, you know, which no science scientists would do because they've got very specialized roles now to show how they're incoherent, for example. Hmm. Uh, and... Um, but, Just uh, to touch really so, quick, though, you mentioned uh, anesthesia or anesthetics. There's been a lot of, you know, use of that as an analogy or when talking about how to disable consciousness and then study it. I just read a recent study, and I don't know if it's true or not, but they were talking about how maybe it's not the best use to understand because you're still conscious on like a subconscious level when you're in that state. So you're not completely unconscious like they keep talking about when they describe these studies it's a very interesting point and it's related to one that evan thompson made um bringing old indian philosophy uh, back into play which is that you know the the general conception is during sleep that you are unconscious unless you're dreaming hmm. and uh, even when you're dreaming you're not fully self-conscious unless you're lucid dreaming um but uh you know one can question that you know he he argues that there's a baseline of sentience even when you're not dreaming during sleep it's just assumed mm. that you're not conscious because you don't seem to fully remember it or recall it. Mm -hmm. But of course, you could have um, sentience without memory. You know, it's quite, it's quite possible. You know, it's an assumption that we must remember everything that we go through. I mean, as you know yourselves, you've probably forgotten most of the details of your life. Mm -hmm. So it's quite a strong assumption. Same with anesthesia. And yeah, I haven't read that paper, but it sort of makes sense. You know, maybe there is this. Maybe we're never completely gone, mm. ever. I like that. Um, 
Yeah, but I mean, again, it's another assumption. Um, there could be things happening in psychedelics um, which you'd never remember. Uh, there could be the most amazing things that happen that just is not logged. You know, just like dreams. I mean, I'm 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 now remembering more dreams than normal. I think because I don't have to go to work and so on. You know, you're in bed a bit longer, and uh, and I don't think I'm dreaming more. I just think that the recall is better, which implies that you know, like uh, as is a common view. You know, you you forget all you know most dreams. But that's or could it be that you're more relaxed because you know you don't have to get up and go to work and stuff like that. So that way, maybe your mind's opened up to. Like, I mean, it's kind of a hybrid of what you just said and, and yeah, less stuff to do. Um, could be. How, how do you ever, um, you know, interestingly about that in relation to neuro, neurosciences, how do you even test for that? You know, if you can't recall it, how could you test for it? You know, mm. maybe you could somehow talking about how much time do you think has elapsed since you fell asleep or something like this. But there are things that cannot be determined purely quantitatively that are real. Mm. So... What's your experience with psychedelics and what was the first kind of paradigm shifting experience that you had and, and what do you still draw from that or is that something that you've learned from in another way? Um, well, I mean, the most basic, the, the first psychedelic I took were, were then magic mushrooms and uh, liberty caps, psilocybin semi-lanciata, little, uh, little ones, uh, very potent. I mean, the first... Paradigm shift, as it were. Inspiring experience that immediately made me realize the power of the mind. Um, I just had no idea it was like that. It was nothing like a dream, nothing like imagination, way beyond hypnagogic hallucinations. It was just something else. Uh, fusion of different types of experience, ultimate bliss, ultimate fear, and so on. Um, so that's, yeah, that, that's the first thing, you know, we don't, you know, when we talk about relationship between the mind and matter and self-consciousness and all the aspects of mind, intentionality, you know, rhythm iteration, whatever it may be, awakeness, um, this is just the minor, minor part of what the mind can be. You know? mm. So we're trying to understand uh, the mind based on sort of the smallest little fragment of it, really. So psychedelics immediately open, opens up different um, understandings. I think it immediately got rid of, if, you, if you've gone through this intense experience, some philosophies such as behaviorism, logical behaviorism, that mentality doesn't really exist, it's just smiling or movements immediately out the window because you don't behave at all, yet you're having these incredible experiences. Um, it also, you know, puts pay to a lot of theories such as um, there must be intentionality in every mental act, things like this, um, that the that you always have the same species present. I'm using these philosophical terms now, but it says a lot about uh, many assumptions in the philosophy of mind. Mm. So that, that was the first sort of reveal to me, you know, this um, suddenly like a new the mind opened up, you know, the, the possibilities of understanding the minds completely opened up. And, um, and since then I've been exploring um, how it can relate to different philosophies, different metaphysical systems, and so on. You know, like Bergson's, um, Schopenhauer's, Spinoza's now recently, Leibniz, and so on and so forth. Mm. So the drug use of other philosophers, you know, like Nietzsche and uh, you know, William James himself. And what was Nietzsche into? Well, Nietzsche took, you know, he he was. <laughs> He took a lot of um, chloral hydrate. I mean, not classic psychedelics as we understand them today. 
uh, a lot of opium. He, you know, there's a letter where he confesses to taking a, a very large dose of opium. He wrote poems to um, to opium even, and um, he uh, what. You know, allegedly from his sister, cocaine mixtures, um, nitrates. I mean, he he was he was a devious soul because he he was a doctor of philology. But as I I think I mentioned in my TED talk, yeah, he he went into a pharmacy saying he was a doctor and he could get any drug he wanted. Mm. So he did, and we know he did a lot from his friends, but and also that's because he uh, suffered these horrific migraines and and um, periods of nausea. Um, and uh, there's an account of him, you know, hallucinating flowers. There's also um, interesting relationships between his drug use and his um, inspiration from the drug of intoxication, Dionysus, as I mentioned. Mm-hmm. And even, I mean, it, his sister and mother. Now, his sister is a not well-respected um, uh, figure because she married a very famous anti-Semite and started a blonde colony in South America, friend of Hitler's and so on. However, um, she and her mother, Nietzsche's mother, did say that Nietzsche went mad because of his drug use, because of drug abuse. And that's generally not accepted because um, people believe that um, he died of syphilis from a sexual encounter with a prostitute, and that would be embarrassing for his uh, family's legacy, so they made up this drug thing. But actually, when you look at the details, it's, it's absolutely the case that he took a lot of drugs. Mm. And, um, you know, very likely this affected his thought and mental state in many ways yeah so that aspect of um is is interesting to me the non-traditional uh psychedelics that you mentioned in your ted talk and that we were just discussing here uh but what about uh more traditional ones and i mean we can go back you mentioned your ted talks the hallucinating mysteries i'm actually we have been doing an ancient greece series uh and part five is going to be on the hallucinating mysteries um but you know, Terrence McKenna actually talks about it a pretty interesting way. I don't know if you've seen that or listened to that clip. It's like a half hour clip of him talking about like Alcibiades and being in trouble from taking in the Eleusinian mystery sacrament at a house party or something like that. Um, and, um, you know, I don't know, just the, the, the lesser mysteries, I don't think there's any psychedelics involved. The greater mysteries, I definitely think there's something going on there, obviously. So what's your take on that? My personal view is that there was something going on. I mean, they took this potion in the Greater Mysteries, a potion called Kaikian, as you probably know, um, mm-hmm. which ostensibly um, contained ergot, barley, and uh, mint. But, of course, you know, Albert Hoffman, who discovered LSD, he claims that in the ergot, uh, or rather, sorry, in the barley, um, there's likely it was likely infected by ergot, which is a fungal mm-hmm. uh, infection, which is the base of LSD, so, and there are other theories about what it might have been in there. But I mean, people fasted. They took a specific dose of a, of a potion in a uh, chamber of darkness. And then, okay, the problem with the mysteries is it was, as you say, with that case, it was forbidden to talk about it and forbidden to do it outside of, you know, the time and place. Right. Um, uh, lest one suffer severe punishment. But. There are accounts, you know, like in, in uh, Proclus, uh, I mean, Plato even speaks about him wanting to be part, considered a mystic. Um, and he talks about these visions in the, the, the um, Phaedrus, 
and Fido as well on the soul. He talks about these uh, experiences and being a mystic, and uh, and you get hints there. I mean, is it the Fido or the Phaedrus that starts on the river Lissos, which is where the lesser mysteries are held? Mm-hmm. So there's, there's these kind of um, um, hints towards uh, these visions being uh, induced there. Um, and also when you read like in Plato's visions, you know, he talks about these ideal forms and the bright white light and so on. Now, what's the alternative? If, if it wasn't a psychoactive compound, what, like they saw a, a drama play with actors? And yeah, see, see that's... This is a lot of uh, academics believe, traditional ones. I mean, I've got a lot of books about it, but... That's easily debunked though, right? Because they, they were used to great theater. That's where theater came from. Why would so, they why would they react that way to that? And there's no accounts of actors being paid or anything like this to my knowledge. I mean, it's not my field really, but it just seems unlikely. Um and also we know that, you know, like um wine in ancient Greece was very uh, hallucinogenic. They had to water it down all the time. There were Dionysian festivals where people went frantic and and so on. So so this was not unheard of in ancient Greece at all. So um it seems plausible to me that that is the case. However, can't be sure. Number one, I'm not a historian. Number two, um, by the very nature, by its very name, it's a mystery. We do not know. But one comes to the most, I think, that the Kaiken contains something we'd call psychoactive today, which caused visions and changed people's lives. I mean, you know, it was a major, it was a major event that all Greeks were allowed to go to, as long as you, or all people were allowed to go to, including slaves women um as long as you were not convicted of murder i think and as long as you could speak greek so you could understand the initiation mm-hmm. procedure i presume even but, the later uh, uh, romans um came into the picture too and experienced them i mean you got the bacchic uh, bacchanalia which come which basically sort of the legacy of it but of course it was the roman emperor theodosius the first to close down the um, right right the, the thing in um 380 something, 382, I think. But anyway, uh, there are accounts as well, like from Proclus, the, the last Neoplatonist, to, which suggests that these uh, uh, rituals continued underground. They were persecuted by the Christians, mm-hmm. uh, but they still continued. And yeah, so it's plausible. It's certainly plausible, but you can't be sure. Well, there's things that need to be worked out too with the ergot because it's a precursor to LSD, but it's actually will mess you up in your intestines and things like that if it's not processed a certain way. So that needs to be worked out, I think, how that was done. But there's yeah. that the book Road to Eleusis, um and uh as you mentioned. But um yeah Matthew- it's got a book about it as well. I mean, he thinks it's some kind of ayahuasca derivative. Yeah, that's because Peg- Peganum harmala, or uh, yeah, it's pretty prevalent, I think, in that region. I, I I don't know for sure that it grows in Greece, but I'm, I th- I if it grows in the Middle East in that region, I don't see why not. And um, you've got stuff like phalaris grass and acacia that are prevalent in those areas that have high you know contents of uh, DMT as well. Um, yeah, but the interesting thing to me about the Eleusinian Mysteries is the Telesterion. Like, what, that's where everything was happening. What was going on in there? That's the thing that, that you know, nobody knows. But, um, yeah, the, these are things that I like to think about because it's, it's, it's very interesting. It's, and I think that to um, this idea of the mysteries, I think that this idea of being initiated into some sort of secret of life or mystery of life, I think, is very appealing. It's very appealing to me. That's kind of why we started this podcast. Um, 
So, I, you know, I think that's what drives us as human beings. I, I think that, yeah, while science is important, let's figure out the material world and how to navigate it and everything. This idea that there's something more is what propels us as human beings, in my opinion. Um, what do you think about that in terms of the effect on the psyche and the idea of like teleology and that kind of stuff? Well, Schopenhauer said Schopenhauer was known atheist, you know, which is unusual for, for his time. But he said there's a metaphysical need in each of us, uh, probably prevalent more in some than others. But there, I think there is an, an ultimate need to um, gain a greater understanding of one's life and one's reality. There's a kind, yeah, there, there is a kind of impulse. I think it's related to the impulse for knowledge as well. Sometimes um, there's sort of you want to gain more knowledge, even if it's not in your self-interest. It seems so. There seems to be these these drives, and as you intimate, teloi, and now there were telosis in a teloi, um, pushing us of which we are unaware. Teleology, then, um, you know that um, final causes that uh, there are purposes that are actually intrinsic to life. I'm quite I'm um, sympathetic to. I don't think that they are products of efficient causes, if you follow me. So, you know, like Aristotle famously said, there are four explanatory factors of nature. So there's like material cause, cause them, he called them causes, but we, today would explanatory factor would be better. So, you know, there's a material, if you want to explain something, you have to give the material cause, like pottery, you have to give the formal cause, in other words, the form, the shape. Um, you have to give the efficient cause, what brought it into being, a potter. And then to fully explain it, you need to give final cause, like what its purpose is, you know, to drink, in this case, to drink tea from, or coffee from tea. Mm-hmm. Um, whether those final causes are, in this case of the cup, the final cause was given by mankind, obviously, because it's a product of uh, man. But... I believe that there are final causes within nature that push things, you know, that explains things. I think an impulse, like I say, can't be purely reduced to matter because ultimately matter is an abstraction. In other words, it's a shell we don't fully understand. Um, And I think that matter and mind are on an equal par, right? So an impulse, um, in other words, a drive to a certain objective goal, whatever that may be, like Nietzsche says it's power, will to power. Schopenhauer says it's the will to life, to survive, really. Spinoza talks about canatus, you know, will to maintain oneself and develop. Uh, whatever that may be, I think that's absolutely fundamental to reality, as did Leibniz calls it a dominant monad. Mm. I mean, all great philosophers and scientists really believe in this. Also, even scientists are spurred on. They have purposes. They, you know, like, um, I think Whitehead says something like, um, made him laugh that scientists have a strong purpose to... Um, get rid of the notion of purposes, you know, mm-hmm. thereby, you know, forming contradiction. Um, but yeah, no, I, th- I think uh, I think that, well, as a panpsychist, you think that everything is mental, ultimately, and therefore a part of mentality is purpose, you know, is mm-hmm. telos. And um, that's irreducible to what we understand matter to be. You can't understand purpose in terms of matter. You know, matter doesn't point to the future, doesn't point right. to... A- Goals. It can correlate. You can get correlations. But that doesn't, like I said before, correlation doesn't explain anything. It just presents the problem. And therefore, we, you know, then you realize the, 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 the limitations of neuroscience in understanding the mind, or neuroscience as we understand it today with that um, Galilean foundation, which is that it doesn't matter how much you know about the brain. 
in terms of the matter that we understand today, it's irrelevant. You will never, ever understand how it's related to mind in mm -hmm. that sense. And that's why metaphysics is so important. Yeah, the... Well, okay, so I, I think that I've applied, you know, you you look at teleology or purpose or whatever, and I apply it to things. So, like, I was looking at, you know, apply. let's let's apply this to evolution. Evolution, you, if you listen to Richard Dawkins, it's a meaningless, nothing means anything. This is all a cosmic accident. This is just, it's just mechanism or whatever. Um, I think that evolution has a purpose. I don't know what the end goal is. I don't know what's exactly going on. But if you look at what it is, why is this thing trying to survive? Why are organisms trying to survive if there's no meaning, if there's nothing? And by meaning, obviously, you could say that you could go through every single word and pick it apart because it's all just a construct of us. You know, we've mm -hmm. constructed language and basically this reality. So when I look at something like evolution and there's mechanism and function and it's all leading towards something well i would call that purpose i don't know what it, the purpose is but i mean how do you feel about that i mean i, I don't know if you've read thomas nagel's book um cosmos and uh mind and cosmos i think it's called it oh, came out i'll have to check you, it out you'd, you'd enjoy it i think i mean it's it's the view that <clears throat> evolution is true however it's missing out fundamental factors um the most important, which is mind, then, in which purpose is found. Um, why is that? Well, like I said, you can't understand mind from pure matter. It's inexplicable in theory. It's, it's, um, it's disproof of materialism, ultimately. Um, also, like I said, if mind has no effect, if mental has no effect on the body or on the world around it, it would not have evolved. Right, so by um, Alexander's dictum, that to be is to uh, have power to do something, um, we understand that mind must have a vote. I mean, most, if, you, if you ask most biologists, you know, what's the purpose of mind, they'll, they'll be honest about it and say, oh, well, you know, we, we um, perceive like uh, colors, you know, like to, to find uh, fruit or whatever, right? Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we can see movements so we can avoid prey. They'll say that, but at the same time, that really implies mental causation, that the mind is having an effect on the body and the world around it. Right. But at the same time, that then is incoherent with the general materialistic point of view, or physicalist point of view, that um, you can explain everything, um, not mentally, but physically. So it's just a fundamentally incoherent point of view. Um, although with, with Darwin, of course, you've got, as well as natural selection, you've got sexual selection, which gives a role to the mind. You know, one picks out one's mate. So there seems to be a huge role for mind in evolution, which currently is um, not understood. And it can't be because, like I say, the relationship between mind and matter is just not understood by science. Mm -hmm. So with that fundamental omission of knowledge at the basis of any theory of evolution, you realize that theory has to be um, lacking in major respects. So my own personal view is we can, we can only under, fully understand evolution. Well, we can, I don't think we can fully understand it, but we can only um, advance our knowledge of evolution by understanding, by advancing our metaphysical point of view of the relationship between mind and matter. Then I would imagine that we'll see... Um, um, mind playing a major role. Maybe this will be the science in the next 100, 200 years. Mm. 
you know, starting with epigenetics, we see the beginning of it. Epigenetics, you know, which is that we're not fully determined by our genes, but also by the environment in which the genes find themselves, you know, in the cell and thus in the organ in the body, mm-hmm. and thus in the surroundings. So, if, for example, if you're really, if, you, if, if a woman is, is um, in a stressful, war-torn situation and, and becomes pregnant, there's likely an impact on the actual characteristics of child. There's been proved in certain insects and so on, um, by implication humans, but it's a young science. But nonetheless, there is there a sign that there's um, mental causation, again, like stress on the body, for example, right, mental stress. And interestingly, epigenetics was really founded by a guy called C.H. Waddington. And C.H. Waddington, in his autobiography, um, says that his uh, sort of unorthodox experiments and hypotheses were based on Whitehead's philosophy, Whitehead's metaphysics, you know, mm. pan-experientialism, as it came to be known, or the philosophy of organism. And... Um, you know, for you know, for hundred years, such uh, something like epigenetics was completely complete heresy in science. It was, um, you know, neo-Darwinism was the dogma, um, and the dogma was therefore that it doesn't matter what one does in one's life, it will not affect the outcome of the children. Uh, it's purely genes that determine that. But you know, in the last sort of fifteen, twenty years, that has been disproved. And again, that is an ex- a very nice example of a paradigm shift. Mm. You know? That yeah, uh, sure. someone's come in, someone's come in, Waddington in this case, primarily, not just him, of course, but primarily, and he's one of the main founders, and has taken a completely new point of view, in this case, Whitehead's uh, pan-experiential metaphysics, and thus changed the science, and thus science has advanced. Of course, if you ask most biologists about this, uh, they have no clue about it, they don't know about origins. I mean, I even edited a paper on a stem cell science in relation to epigenetics. The author, who's a specialist in, in this, didn't, didn't have a minor knowledge about that influence. Mm. But that's one example of how philosophy can help science as well. But then you say, well, you know, that's not philosophy's role, just to help science. I mean, philosophy used to be known as the handmaiden of theology, and then the 20th century became the sort of handmaiden of science. But ultimately, with metaphysics, it, it, it can stand in its own right, I think. So we uh we touched on him a little bit in some prior episodes, but I wanted to get your thoughts on Rudolf Steiner and some of his teachings. Um, well, to be honest, I don't know much about him. I um I know about his schools. I know that he worked for Nietzsche's sister, whom I mentioned, at the Nietzsche archive, and he wrote about it. He, I, I mean, I, I can't. One funny thing, all I can say is a funny anecdote from him that, um, which actually influences Nietzsche's studies quite a lot which is that he was tasked with teaching Elizabeth Foster Nietzsche, like Nietzsche's sister, uh, mm. philosophy, right? Mm. And, he, and he said she was completely clueless. You know, she couldn't grasp basic things and uh, didn't have a clue, and he ultimately gave up and left the whole uh, archive, mm. the whole job. And um, that's quite interesting because it's, again, a common belief that this book called The Will to Power by Nietzsche, I mean, it's a posthumous collection of notes, which was edited by Elizabeth, but also by other people. Um, a lot of people think that's just made up. You can't get Nietzsche's uh, real thoughts from that. She probably wrote them. I mean, like reading uh, Steiner on, on her, you realize, no, she could not have possibly written those notes. Right. I mean, the very notes that she would, it's just completely implausible. So that book, as a nachlas, as a collection of uh, Nietzsche's thoughts, uh, very valuable. 
But with regard to Stein himself, yeah, you know, no, I'm afraid I, I don't I haven't read his except for that one and a few other little things yeah. many years ago. I don't, I don't really know much about him. I'm afraid he's interesting in the fact that he was a uh, hardcore hard scientist and then kind of evolved into a serious mystic. So I think that yeah. that evolution is is kind of an interesting one. That transformation, like what would make you go from being somewhat of a um, you know materialist to completely you know, the other way, but, uh, um, so we've got some chatter on our, uh, live chat about, um, you know, the whole Roger Pemrose and Stuart Hameroff microtubules and consciousness and trying to prove consciousness through some material vehicle. Um, and obviously they didn't succeed. I, I don't think it's, um, a, a failure in the sense that anytime you can look at something like that, there's, whether it's, something comes out of it positive or negative or whatever you still have results so um do you think that there'll ever be a time where because this is the thing that bothers me is every week i see a new article we figured out what consciousness is or this is going to lead to the breakthrough yeah. that, that we've been waiting for with consciousness and um I, seriously every week there's articles um and it always starts like this for thousands of years, philosophers <laughs> tried to work out consciousness, but now scientists have discovered what it is, right. and what it is is just like something that philosophers had considered hundreds of years ago and uh, dismissed. You know, always. That's how the press works, though. You know, to get is clickbait, isn't it? Right. But it does get frustrating. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah, and I think that it does it at kind of a disservice because it is like one of these true last remaining mysteries, and it's something that should propel us to um, look at it from a more philosophical or um, ob objective standpoint but again there's this like this idea from like we got to prove this they've got to prove everything you know they've got to take the world over and say that this is what it is and again i love science but i just feel like you when you suck the mystery or the the excitement out of something what's left you know we're just left with this you know very... i think yeah I, I think science should be seen as a method like i said you know you explore the natural world extremely valuable you mm -hmm. develop medications extremely valuable to us but you also develop weapons you know nuclear bombs and whatnot right so it goes both ways right however you must make it's very important in my view to make the distinction between science's method and what is known as can be known as scientism um which is science's dogma like okay. uh, you know this is the truth and the re i think the reason that's developed is especially in america i see from my sort of european point of view you know i'm half british half swedish as i say um Americans like to be polarized quite often. You know, you've got this big black and white, good and evil uh, legacy somehow, I think. And um, with the religious uh, contingent in your country, who get very dogmatic, uh, it sort of swings the other side. And then you say, no, this is completely wrong. It has to be explained this way, which then unfortunately causes this polarization, which stifles debate. I mean, the truth often is somewhere in the middle. Um, yeah. So, um, so um yeah with with hammeroff and um and uh, penrose's theory of microtubules and consciousness i mean i haven't read the latest stuff they they wrote i'm not i was never really i think david chalmers was quite scathing about it as well i mean it's it, uh, don't, i don't see how it can um even if it is the case that uh, particles go through the uh, nanotubules at a point of decision still leaves the mystery unanswered but like i said i haven't read the latest stuff and what i did read was years ago i think ultimately the problem is this which and the problem 
with all of this is our knowledge of matter. It's not our, our knowledge of mind so much. Galen mm -hmm. Strauss talks about this. We don't understand what matter is. We call it matter energy, but just you know, postpones the problem. We don't know what energy intrinsically is. We know what it can do. We can measure many aspects of it. Eddington, who, um, who sort of proved Einstein's views, he said that this is like, point, he calls it the problem of pointer readings, you know, like um, you get a bit of a ma you know, like matter energy, it can point at certain, you know, heat or mass or, or whatever it may be. Um, but that just indicates what it can do to our instruments. It doesn't indicate what it ultimately is. It's a bit like uh, the problem of other minds. You know, I can see you we're virtually here mm -hmm. and assume certain things about your mind, but I can't directly see your mind. This is the problem of other minds, and this is one of the major problems of logical positivism, prevalent philosophy in the early 20th century, which is that, um, you know, it's for something, for a proposition to be meaningful, it has to be verifiable in principle um, by observation, but of course the problem is you can't verify other people's minds, but yet you don't want to deny that they exist, unless you go, and that's why behaviorism really took, took a precedent for, for a little while, mm -hmm. until it and erupted in horrible paradoxes. And that's why no one really is a behaviorist today. Um, but this is the fundamental problem that people don't realize, that with the, this notion of proof, right? Um, if you can't prove it, it can't be true or we can't know it. But proof applies not to all of reality. Like we can't, um, you know, proof applies to mathematical equations, you know, like in mathematics. It, proves, it applies to logic. Um, it applies to certain empirical sciences, but even then, you can only really prove that something's wrong. You can't prove it's right, to the problem of induction or falsificationism. Um, but when it comes to the mind and metaphysics, when it comes to considering something you know to be real from your first-hand experience, but yet you cannot observe in others, not directly anyway, you can't get my perspective and my thoughts immediately. Mm. You can observe them. Um, we have to realize that this notion of proof, proving something, comes to a limit. We have to realize that there are things that are real that cannot be proved in this common way. And um, if you if you denied that, you would become like an ultimate solipsist. All you could prove is that you, your own mind existed. Mm -hmm. You could prove that other people's mind existed. Um, and that would not be, in my view, a very rational point of view, right? It would be irrational to think that you should only believe things that can be proved. Mm -hmm. um, have to realize that a lot, mo most knowledge really is um, inference to the best explanation. You know? This is as good as it gets, really. Inference to the best explanation. It's yeah. not about proof is a limited notion of knowledge. And, and, uh, and, and this is what frustrates me sometimes when you talk about mind and metaphysics. They say, well, it can't be proved, therefore. You know, it's just speculation, but it's not. I mean, there are parsimonious views of the mind and there are uh, our views that are less parsimonious, you know, mm -hmm. parsimony, inference based explanation, so on. Um, this is a whole epistemology about understanding metaphysics and philosophy of mind, which just goes unnoticed to most people, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I love, uh, well, Socrates, or I guess Plato wrote it, but uh, I know what I don't know. I mean, that's, is there anything true hey. or ever said? I mean, if you, if you, if you boil it down to what do we actually really know, I mean, even, Descartes, which I know you would probably disagree with, the cogito based on what I've heard you talk about, but this idea that he was able to really kind of break it down. You know, I don't think that when people think on those terms, they're able to really do that, really break it down to the most base core of, of 
what reality could be or is. I mean, people get tricked by language. You know, you have a word mm-hmm. which refers to a concept, and then people believe the concept refers to something real. But of course, concept is always an abstraction, always limited uh, part of what's real. The reality is something much more. We have a concept, for example, of the sun. Right? Does that mean you intimately know what the sun is? Of course not. You know, you don't know. We don't know what's inside the sun, how long it will last, and so on. Make inferences, but that's it. Right. Um, and so our language, of course, is the condition for our communication and condition for the amazing civilization that we have created. However, it's also our worst enemy in many ways. It just sort of, um, you know, we've it, it's um, it's created a world for us which. Um, you know, it's very good practically in most cases, but in many cases, uh, you know, when it boils down to the fundamental core of reality, it leads us astray. This is something that Alan Watts, for example, is very good at explaining, you know, in analogy. Mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, it's kind well, of a prison, right? Language is a, is a prison because it gives you guidelines and, and um, almost like dimensions to what you can do and not do. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, certainly there are moral um connotations to certain words like duty and whatever but also yeah just cuts up reality according to a preformed schema you're brought up in that way and that's how you see reality and um interestingly you know like different languages then with different concepts like a language which doesn't focus on nouns so much as english does but verbs for example um one would be more inclined to see the world in a different way accordingly i think there's an interesting an interesting um um, paper like years ago now something like this that even English and German which are you know very similar languages really mm-hmm. compared to you know Asian languages or whatever, um, they showed a picture of a man walking towards a car they asked English people what's going on in the uh, and in, in the in the picture and they asked a load of Germans what was going on they found something like this I can't remember the details but it was like for English speaking people they said they said what's going on and they said oh, like it's the man walking and the Germans said um, there's a man trying to get to his car. So they have more, you know, sort of somehow their language right. has more of an intention towards purposes than English has, you know. Mm. But at the same time, English is an amazing language. It absorbs that which it doesn't have, you know, and uh, it's very flexible. It's got a huge uh, lexicon, unlike Swedish, which I also speak, which is very limited in that sense. It doesn't have these horrible long German words, doesn't have the sort of the, the sort of main uh, word at the end of a huge sentence like German does. So it's got a lot of things going for it as well. But my ultimate point is that um, language yeah, certainly changes the way we see the world. Um, maybe literally, I mean, there's, there are theories that, um, like, for example, certain Asian languages um, uh, have the same word for blue and green. So does that mean they actually see the two, what we call two colors mm-hmm. as a or not? It's, uh, you know. The Sapir-Whorf hypothesis goes into that, you know, it's known in sociology. Um, and, uh, and this ultimately goes back to Whitehead's, Russell, Bertrand Russell said of his teacher, White, Alfred North Whitehead, this is what he's the master at, bringing out abstractions, you know, telling us that what we have assumed to be a concrete, like real thing, is actually just our way of abstracting it, just our way of like generalizing about it. Yeah. Um, which misses so much, which is fundamental to reality itself. And that's why white, reading Whitehead in many ways is like taking psychedelic. It just, like Nietzsche as well, actually. Whitehead, Nietzsche, Silas Seidman, those have been the three figures to me just to sort of completely uh, change my mindset about reality. Yeah, I just started getting into Whitehead. Actually, Joe Moore, uh, we had on from Psychedelics Today, oh, uh, mentioned him 
a few times and I'm like, I got to check this guy out. So, I mean, as where I'm a little bit more, was more interested in the pre-Socratics and uh, ancient Greeks and kind of working my way into the, uh, you know, medieval times or dark ages, if you will. But uh, so I guess my thing with, with the language though, is also that um, like you mentioned, it kind of maybe affects consciousness a little bit depending on where you are and what you're doing. But do you think that that's why, uh, we was Westerners resonate with more of like the ancient Greek philosophy is where, um, you know, people are always like, well, what about, you know, the ancient Egyptian or ancient Indian, uh, influence on ancient Greece and that kind of a thing. So do you think it's, we resonate because our language comes from, is derived from that area? Or do you think that that has any kind of connection? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly there's a linguist, linguistic connection. Uh, there's also just the history that we, um, have this, we preserve these ancient Greek texts. I mean, it was actually the, the Muslims who preserved them in, in the medieval times for us, um, but uh, nonetheless preserved, translated, and became part of a legacy of a tradition. You know, a teacher learns it and then teaches his students who then go on to teach it. Plus just the fact that, you know, um, in the past there was not the um, travel possibilities that we have today, so it was hard to get hold of like an ancient Chinese text or something like that, mm-hmm. you know? So, um, so of course we have our own Western legacy um deriving from the greeks but um there's you know obviously very interesting legacies from the east as well and uh, elsewhere that uh, i'm not i mean you know i'm part of this legacy so i was brought up with the classic philosophers um interestingly schopenhauer people say is the like the bridge between east and west because he was very much influenced by the upanishads mm-hmm. um Kant wrote a little bit about them but dismissively or about okay. eastern generally uh, Lao Tzu can't mention in a very dismissive way, as a, he calls him like a Spinozist, as if that's a bad thing. And, um, and um, you know, reading, yeah, like Evan Thompson and people like that, you realize that they had a, there's a rich philosophy uh, of a lot of depth in the East. Um, but, you know, even West, the Western canon, I haven't got enough time to, like, understand all of these classic philosophers even, right. let, let alone the East. I got into the Kyoto School of Philosophy uh, a year or two ago, which, you know, briefly, and the, and just you just get tastes and you realise that there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uh, stuff to be taken from there. But you know, mm-hmm. what what can one man do in his lifetime is just too much. Right. So uh, I, I want to we're we're winding down here, but I want to talk a little bit about my favourite piece of right which is plato's the allegory of plato's cave and somebody just mentioned it in the comments as well Uh, we've mentioned it on the podcast a few times too do you think that what do you think was going on there do you think that was just him trying to describe a paradigm shift or do you think that was possibly related to maybe his experience at the eleusinian mysteries or some sort of psychedelic experience or what do you you think was going on there i mean it does sound ostensibly like telesterian doesn't it yeah it does yeah you know and seeing the light and so on and that you can relate to, like the um, passage in the Phaedrus, where he talks about this procession of Zeus seeing these ultimate ideal forms and so on. I mean that you know it's very analogous. And um, and like I say, he couldn't be, he wasn't allowed to be explicit about it for fear of persecution. Like so, his teacher Socrates was persecuted for mm-hmm. um, uh, corrupting the youth about false gods, right? Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I think. There's a strong case for that, but again, again, you can't cannot be sure about it. Um, but also, I mean, there's a rational case for it as well. It's a good analogy for believing in the forms, you know, what we today call uh, universals, that they're mm-hmm. 
Now, for many re logical reasons, which I first of all thought completely oh, silly, but now I come to understand that that they're actually are not at all and quite rational. Um, there, there has to be um, a kind of uh, existential status for forms, right? Universals like colours or numbers or certain concepts and so on. You know, they, you can't reduce them down to particular ins instances. Mm -hmm. So with that um, sort of understanding, then um, you can see here a good way to describe that, to teach that is through this analogy of the cave, but not to say that that wasn't influenced by um, his experiences in Eleusis, 14 miles away from Athens. Um, I mean, I've had mushroom experiences where I've seen ultimate like forms of beauty like boom 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 like this you know mm -hmm. I, I just thought to myself or experienced to myself somehow um that this is the platonic form this is the it can't get better than this this is what all beauty ultimately aims for this perfect form and uh, if plato did have such you know personal experiences that would make sense of uh, of the analogy mm. but we can but speculate here i mean we're going back two and a half thousand years as well so it's yeah, I mean, obviously, a lot of this is speculation, even if you go back and, you know, it's like um, Democritus. Yeah, he created the idea of the atom, but then, oh, wait, it might have been his teacher, Leucippus. Oh, wait, Leucippus might not have even existed at all. So, I mean, there's all these <laughs> different, you know, you, yeah. when you look at that stuff, you kind of have to really just take it for what it is, is just the, the knowledge of it and uh, for the times. But, um, yeah. well, I want to wrap. Extract what is useful to you today, you know, let alone Heraclitus, for example. Which I find, you know, beautiful and uh, yeah. somewhat useful. And, and for Heraclitus, is more the process what Hedian philosopher of the past really. Heraclitus was uh, was that was what am I thinking of Cratylus or Heraclitus? You step in the river uh, only yeah. once. Yeah. Um, I want to wrap it up here, but do you mind doing an extra ten minutes with us, fifteen minutes with us for our Patreon? Gladly. Yeah. Okay. Well. Uh, thank you. Thank you for paying. Uh, attention and watching us and uh checking us out folks and we appreciate it we love you all stay safe out there and uh is there anything you want to plug on uh the end of this one that uh your uh, books or um well i've got a book numenautics you know um which is uh, on psychedelics and metaphysics and metaethics i've got a new book coming out soon which will include uh uh more stuff um but um yeah look out for my new book it, pro it will be published with psychedelic press an independent press here in the uk is it a working uh, title, or do you have a title yet? Or uh, I don't actually. I just can't. I can't think of one. <laughs> okay. So, Welcome, you know dear. I'll put a link to your book. I'll put a link to your uh, Twitter account. I'll put a link also to your TED Talk down below the video after we're done, so people can check those out. His TED Talk's awesome. I've listened to and watched probably almost all the science and philosophy TED Talks, and his is probably one of the better ones. So absolutely check it out. Um, and if you want to see us continue this conversation. Go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Mike and Maurice for $2 a month. You'll get exclusive uh, content and access to some stuff that we don't publish on our other formats. So check that out. Again, we love you. Stay safe and uh, peace. Peace.